Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is really, really good to be with you. Thank you, Troy, for sharing the equipment. It is always good to be with the people of God. And uh, for us missionaries, it is very important uh, to, to know and to experience that we're, that we're actually sent by the church. That we are an extension of local churches like yours who care for us, who pray for us, who support us, and it's always a blessing to be with you in our time. So let me just briefly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Tom Magdalena, and I'm actually native to Belgium. I'm a native Flemish speaker. And, uh, and my parents are not American, so I come from a long generation of Flemish people. And when I was 19 years old, uh, I had the opportunity to move to the U.S. with my mom and stepfather and several siblings. I was not a Christian. And uh, through God's grace, I became a Christian uh, in college through the ministry of university, as well as my wife, Carolina, who was also an immigrant from Chile. Now, she arrived in the States as a 10-year-old. And so both of us became Christians through the ministry of university. A real church experience uh, was a, a Presbyterian experience, an Orthodox Presbyterian church in New Jersey. Uh, the Lord eventually led us to Jackson, Mississippi, when I attended seminary. And, uh, and Katrina was then, I think she was born during our seminary days. Um, and uh, after seminary, I ended up in Indianapolis as an assistant pastor for five years before I joined MTW. And our first uh, assignment was in Istanbul, Turkey, where I served with uh, others for about four years. And then in 2002, through the invitation of a Flemish national, I was invited back to come to Belgium and uh, went to quite a reverse culture shock, having been away for many years. And so I've been in Belgium since 2002. I've worked primarily as a church planter of an international uh, community church, which is now part of the IBC, the International Presbyterian Church. But also worked as a regional director for global Muslim ministry, being in charge of Europe. I resigned that position um, about six months ago, a little longer this summer, this past summer, to join a new uh, initiative from within MTW called the 1826 Network. And the 1826 Network is basically uh, a division that's focused on turning your vocation into missions. <clears throat> and it's quite a unique division in the sense that uh, we're not, even though we are part of a mission agency, we ourselves are not a mission agency because the people that go out from through 1826 are not employed by MTW, they're employed by a local employer. But like MTW missionaries and 1826 missionaries, they form what we call hybrid teams to work alongside local church partners to advance the kingdom of God. And so uh, we're about five years old, and uh, it's really caught on, especially among our younger generation. So at the moment, we have about 50 1826 missionaries that use their vocation as a mission all over the globe. And we have about 22 people in the pipeline to join us. We are interviewing people constantly. Now, we are making sure that 1826 missionaries 
who use their job as their mission to support local work are called to do that. So you go through an extensive uh, interview process, uh, vetting process, which is different from the traditional process of the missionary, uh, to make sure that they are called to, uh, 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 to you know, as a vocational missionary to support local work. So um, I will leave some of these cards in, in the back on the table there. Um, you can, you know, so you can pray for us. We need prayer. If you would like to know more about the 1826 network, um, I noticed on the on the back of the bulletin that my email address is on there. Please email me. I will also have some uh, little business cards. You can check our website, which is basically the 1826 network website with tons of information. If you're interested to use your job as a way to support local missionary work cross-culturally, then please check us out. Um, and uh, because we have lots of opportunities to do so. Tom, could you give me like one example of someone who's doing that? Well, we um, have uh, a young couple that recently uh, uh, went as 1826 workers uh, living in London, in the city of London. Uh, uh, the couple uh, is working, uh, the man, the, 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 the forest is working in the IT department of a local company, and his wife uh, is doing a PhD in Cambridge. And so they have joined 1826 in connection with a local IPC church. So we have an IPC church, uh, church plant in Hammersmith, in London. And so they are there to support that work, but in a vocational way. Yes. So that's, that's one example. We have people all over the world. Uh, we have teachers, nurses, uh, engineers. Um, uh, yeah, all kinds of people. So. Thank you. Um, so let's turn to God's word. Um, now the, uh, the idea for this message today uh, came from an article that an IPC pastor, Paul Lee, who is the pastor of IPC Ealing in West London, he was asked to write an article for uh, um, for the for the tabletop issue, and so his article for tabletop issue appeared in the September of 2021. And uh, <clears throat> the title of the article is Three Questions for Evangelism." And Paul was kind of a, a you know he was. He came to IPC Ealing back in the late 90s. He was a young man, 28 years old, very gifted. And, uh, and so when he got there, the church was, was kind of struggling. 35 people today, IPC Ealing has up to 120 people attending. Um, people come there from all kinds of different backgrounds and cultural backgrounds. And so uh, he, the Lord really used him to grow the IPC in, uh, in the UK, in England, and on the continent. And so today we probably have about 90 IPC elders, ruling and teaching elders. And we have a, a mission presbytery. 
that's on the continent of which I'm a part of. And we have about 21 teaching elders and ruling elders in, 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 on the continent. So, but this is what he writes. He says, we keep sowing, planting the gospel seed. We're actually aware that God gives the increase. It is his work, and we constantly rest in Jesus' promise that he will build his church. I do think, however, that times like this in the church life should turn us outward to be thinking how we can reach out. God has placed us where we are, and he is in the different circumstances that we face and working in the lives of the people we know. If you're anything like me, you can be very shy in taking that relationship further in speaking about the gospel. But I have found it helpful recently to think of three questions that I hope you might be able to use in praying for and speaking with your friends. Would you like to come for dinner? Would you like to come to church? And would you like to read the Bible? And so this brings me to our text for today, which comes out of Mark chapter 2. And I will actually begin reading uh, verse 1, beginning at the beginning, verse 1 through verse 17. So when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at, at home and many were gathered together, so there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing, him, uh, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because, the, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So they were all amazed, and glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to them, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are 
Those who are, are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God add the blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Now, Mark's gospel is intensely practical. Some of you may know that is not so much biographically or chronologically put together, uh, but it's organized around theological themes. And this becomes apparent very quickly as Mark begins by highlighting the early Galilean ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 2 features five conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the first conflict happens here in chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. And the conflict was introduced by a question. Verses 6 and 7. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the significance of the second conflict is once again brought into the open by a question. The Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, verse 16, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? So in other words, the pivotal question today is not who can forgive sins, but who needs forgiveness of sin. And to deal with this question, I want to focus on Jesus and Levi, Jesus and Levi's friends, and Jesus and Levi's opponents. So first of all, Jesus and Levi, who needs forgiveness? Now, not very much is known about Levi. We know from verse 14 his name, his occupation, and of his interaction here with Jesus. And on the surface, Levi's world may seem average, without many particular issues or problems, but really nothing could be further from the truth. So let me try to paint a picture of what his world looked like. Now, first of all, Levi was a Jew. He was a Jewish tax official in the service of Herod, who himself was subject to Roman rule. And as a tax officer, he was in charge of customs. And he occupied a boot on a major international road that went from Damascus through Capernaum, Galilee, where this incident takes place. A mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Now, tax collectors were expected to take a commission on the taxes they collected in order to make a living. But many of them abused the system, overcharged, and became very, very wealthy because of it. And so they were hated for cheating, they were hated for their support of Rome, and were actually classed with the vilest of men. In some Jewish literature, they are listed together with murderers and robbers. So sure, Levi's profession had made him a wealthy man, but he was a complete outcast, excommunicated from the synagogue, excommunicated from 
social Jewish life, he was a complete disgrace to his family. So I'm sure that Levi's private world must have felt miserable at times as he had contemplated his decision and circumstances. But the decision that caused Levi to become wealthy on the one hand and an outcast on the other is now going to give him the opportunity to follow Jesus. Now, by the time Jesus speaks to Levi, Levi in all likelihood was well aware of Jesus and the kind of people he associated with. It is very likely that Levi had actually seen Jesus as well, because everyone who traveled through the city of Capernaum eventually had to pass by Levi's booth, and we know from the scriptures that Jesus traveled back and forth with his disciples quite often. And so one day, Levi is working, and he sees a large crowd coming in his direction, and right away he must be thinking, well, that has to be Jesus. All attention is focused away from him, this focused on the crowd. And then can you imagine his thoughts? Boy, I wish I could meet him. He's not like all these other teachers, all these other Pharisees. I mean, he, he teaches with authority. He's healed a leper. He's healed a paralytic. He even claims to forgive sins. But I'm a tax collector and a Jew, and he's an important man, an important rabbi. He would never, ever want to associate with me or even talk to me. But then he notices the crowd getting closer and closer to his booth. And now Jesus is within reach. And he suddenly hears his name, Levi, follow me. Stunned and surprised. He cannot believe it. Not only is Jesus calling him by his name, which is in and of itself very significant, inviting him to become his follower. Now the command to follow is, not, is much more than just a command to walk after someone, but has the strong, strong implication to imitate or to become like-minded. And this kind of following of Jesus is impossible without a radical change from within. A change impossible without faith and repentance. And Jesus has made this very clear from the very outset of his gospel, as Mark records it in chapter 1, verse 14 through 17. Jesus said, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaimed the good news. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting net into the lake, for they were fishermen, and he said, come and follow me. Repent and believe. Come and follow me. And so Jesus had met Levi in Levi's world in order to reveal to him and show him why he had come. And like the paralytic in the previous story, Jesus called Levi by his name. I mean, the paralytic called him son, but just 
just as Moses saying, but to express and bring mercy to us, to, to individual people who have a name. And in hearing his name Levi, immediately understood through the power of the Spirit, he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. And so Levi got up and became a disciple of Jesus. And so that day he walked away from his booth and he said goodbye to Rome. He said goodbye to Herod. He said goodbye to his wealth to become a disciple of Jesus. Now maybe some of you are in the same position Levi was in. You're caught in a cycle of sin that you think has completely disqualified you from the mercy of God, from the forgiveness of God. But when you read through the gospel, you, you are just, we are amazed the kind of people Jesus hung out with, prostitutes, adulterers, thieves, beggars, murderers. Those are the people he hung out with. There's this uh, YouTube video that you can watch called I Am Second. I don't know if you ever watched it. I Am Second. It's called I Am Second. These are people who have testimonies of how they come to Christ. And some of these testimonies are amazing. And they always end up saying, I am second because Christ is first. You know, when, 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 when Jesus talked to the rich young ruler, he said, yeah, he, Jesus, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible, it's very hard for rich people to come to Christ. And uh, because he said it's, it's like, it, it, it's, it's a crawling to the eye of a needle, a camel crawling to the eye of a needle. And the disciples went, who can be saved? A camel can never crawl to the eye of a needle. Then who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? With man this is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. So let Levi be your object lesson. On the one hand, Levi, and in Levi we see sin defined and all its power over him, but on the other hand, we meet Jesus who's able to overcome sin's power by his invitation to follow him. Jesus and Levi, who needs forgiveness of sin? Well, we all do, don't we? Even as Christians, we need to continue to come to Jesus seeking his forgiveness. Even though in Christians the dominion of sin has been broken, as Romans 6 makes clear, yet the presence of sin remains. We experience as Christians the, 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 the battle that we have between the old and the new, the old man and the new man. And we fight that battle. And this is why Jesus, as Pastor said a little earlier, quoting from Matthew 11. This is why Jesus says, come to me. Keep coming to me, all you are weary and burdened. What's he talking about? He's talking about the burden of sin. Come to me, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, for I am humble and gentle of heart. Come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to continue to go and seek his mercy. Now, for those who are followers of Jesus, who have come to faith and repentance, how are you following? Remember, we follow a person, 
not a religious system. 1 Peter 2, 21 says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. How are we doing? And this brings us to our second point, Jesus and Levi's friends. How do we follow? So while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now Jesus had said, Behold, the kingdom of God is near. But how does the kingdom of God draw near? Only if sinners repent and believe the good news. And how are sinners confronted with the good news? Only when followers of Jesus go and seek them out. And that's precisely what Levi does. And how does he do it? Very simple. He reaches out to his friends and tax collectors and sinners by way of a party. And the invitation reads, yes, he's coming for dinner. His friends too were social outcasts, inferiors to the Pharisees. Jesus could not reach them at the synagogue, so Levi gives them a party to introduce them to Jesus. And so right away, Levi understood and put into practice several kingdom principles. And here's one that is important. Mixing with non-believers is essential to God's redemptive effort. Jesus reminds us of this when he characterizes the people of God as, of God as salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount. So salt, if it's going to be useful in order to preserve and to make it taste better, needs to touch something. Amen. <laughs> if you have eggs or any dinner and you want it to taste a little different, you can't just think about the salt. You have to actually pick it up and use it. It has to touch something. Jesus says, go and touch something. We, the church, need to go touch the world out there. And then he says, you know, you should be light. Well, if you want to have Use of light, you have to turn it on. If you're in the dark and you want to find something, you have to turn on the switch. Jesus says, be light. Let your light shine. So a very important expression of following Jesus is to share your Jesus with your unbelieving friends. And one of the things that is that we often do in Belgium, because I think Belgium and the Boston area are a bit similar, uh, in terms of, you know, the, the secularism and, and, and the people are, are on guard, you know, from religion. But one of the things that we use is hospitality. It's an easy thing to do. And hospitality is one way to expose your unbelieving friends and acquaintances to Jesus and his gospel. It is to share what you have with others. Would you like to come for dinner? It's, it's, it's pretty easy to have. Would you like to share what I have? And that's precisely what Levi did. It was not very hard. Now another kingdom principle Levi understood is that Jesus is the only way who can save sinners from eternal judgment. Now when I became a Christian as a junior in college in Frostburg State University in Western Maryland, 
I became immediately aware of this principle. For I thought I was the only Belgian Christian, which is not the case. But you know, I have never come in touch with the gospel in Belgium. But my thoughts are, wow, what about all these people? If, if, you know, they haven't heard, they haven't heard this. I gotta go there and tell them. Now it's difficult to contemplate about Jesus and judgment and, and hell. I know it's hard. I, I still struggle with it even to this day, but Jesus talked about it all the time. It's an unpopular concept today. But you know, without Jesus, your unbelieving friends are forever lost. They need to know that Jesus alone can forgive their sins. This is what C.S. Lewis said. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Doesn't that describe most of our unbelieving friends? You see, we need to expose our unbelieving friends to Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Levi cared so much and he came up with a basic strategy and a plan. And actually, you get a better feel for this when you read Luke's account, who mentions Levi holding a great banquet at his house for a large crowd, Luke 529. And banquets and feasts are actually a biblical picture of intimacy with the Lord, are a picture of a, of a saving relationship with the Lord. For example, Isaiah. 25 and 55 make that very clear. Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich fruit full of marrow, of aged wine well-defined. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then, of course, Matthew, uh, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, verse 4. Tell those who are invited, say, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my oxen and fattened calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. And this brings me to the second question Paul Levy proposed in, table, in the table court article, would you like to come to church? From hospitality dinner at your house to hospitality dinner at the church. The Bible describes the church as the household of God. Ephesians 2.22, at the household of God that comes to worship is a foretaste of this great banquet Jesus describes here in Matthew 22 and Isaiah prophesied about in 25 and 55. So you've got, to rub, you've got to seize the opportunity to rub shoulders with non-Christians if you're going to reach anyone. And many of your opportunities are right there in front of you. Simply invite your friends and acquaintances to your home for dinner and to the church for worship. How are we following? God wants ordinary lives to bless others. And by ordinary, I do not mean mediocrity. The stories of our ordinary lives are so much more powerful than we're willing to think and admit. 
Why? Because we are in Christ. We are a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. You see, our story as Christian is part of God's story. And your personal story is a story that relates to God's story. And to put it simply, and to put it simply, is how you can share your faith with others at your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in school, in the gym, and in your home. Our nonverbal witness is a very important and powerful witness. It's just not about sharing the four spiritual laws or whatever method you want to use. It's about living Christ incarnationally and letting your story be told that way. Now in closing, notice the third party at Levi's house, the Pharisees. And they think Jesus and his disciples are doing evangelism or outreach the wrong way, eating with sinners and tax collectors. Are you kidding? So Jesus and Levi's opponents, whose word are you going to believe? And the teachers of the law who are Pharisees on eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous and sinners. Now the word sinner in our text referred to a class of people who were regarded by the religious elite as inferior. Because they did not follow the Pharisaic interpretation of God's holy law, the Torah. And by eating and associating with sinners, Jesus engages, as I've said before, in an intimate fellowship with them, something that was simply unacceptable by the Pharisees because it would mean that they would become ceremonially unclean and that meant that they could not participate in the religious rituals of temple worship. And therefore Jesus responds to the criticism of the Pharisees with a common Jewish proverb. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And with this proverb, Jesus wants to get several critical, logical points across. He says with this proverb, well, only when you realize you're sick do you seek out a physician. And the physician in turn spends his time helping the sick get better. But how can the physician help the sick if he's not willing to get close to them? And how can the sick get better if they aren't willing to seek out a physician? What is the purpose of a, of a physician, is what he's saying with this, with this problem. Is it not to heal the sick? But since you consider yourself healthy, that is the Pharisees, you do not need a physician. And this is why Jesus adds to the proverb, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to drive home his messianic mission. He wants to make sure they understand there's only one way to stand before God justified. And it is not the way of the Pharisees who did not deny faith as an essential, but believe in faith plus. 
Faith plus their interpretation and following of the law. They believed as Paul once believed, who, in, who, who talked about his resume as a pre-Christian. Uh, he said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless or faultless. They actually taught you could be, you could interpret the law blamelessly. But there was only one who was blameless, faultless with regard to the law. And that is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the great physician. And so Jesus spends time with them, sinners and tax collectors, because they recognize their need of him and that he is the only one who can truly heal them, who can truly save them. And of course, those who consider themselves righteous do not need to repent and do not need saving. But then who is righteous? No one except God alone. No one except Jesus alone. This story makes clear that the invitation by Jesus for healing and restoration, full and free, is for those who recognize they have no righteousness of their own. And the invitation does not make any sense for the self-righteous. So this begs the question, whose word are you going to believe? Whose voice are you going to listen to? Levi chose him to listen to the voice of Jesus instead of the Pharisees. And there are many, many voices today competing for your attention and loyalty, just as there was in Levi's day. Our first parents were deceived by the voice of the usurper as they ignored the voice of their creator. And the usurper's voice continues to deceive many today. And they come to us in a variety of ways via the phone, the internet, TV, radio, and they have their goal to change your thinking. These voices are after your affections. They're after your heart. But what is the voice we need most of all to hear and embrace? It is the voice of Jesus. Listen to the warning of Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, the voice of God, the voice of Christ, the great physician, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He's talking about the Israelites on the day of testing in the wilderness. You see, the, the Egyptians died in the Red Sea, but the generation of Israelites died in the desert because they refused to listen to the voice of God. So whose voice are you going to listen to? Whose words are you going to believe? And this brings us back to the Pauline's article in Table Talk and his last question, would you like to read the Bible? God's word. Would you like to listen to the voice of God? So would you like to come for dinner? Would you like to come to church? Would you like to read the Bible? Now, the Great Commission can never be fulfilled by pastors and missionaries alone. That's what Michael O said. In order to fulfill the Great Commission, every believer needs to be a minister in every workplace that places minister, said Bishop Ephraim. We're all sent once. We're all missionaries to a degree. We're all called to go. 
Not all of us have been called to go to Belgium. You here in Boston have been called to go into the Boston area. But let me conclude with one short story uh, of Maria Chapman's book, Of Whom the World, the World is Not Worthy. And she tells the story of an evangelist called Yaakov who wants to witness to an elderly man called Zimmerman. This happens in Eastern Europe, you know, prior to the fall of the Soviet Union. So as Jacob began to speak to Zimmerman, the elderly man, Jacob responded, Zimmerman responded, and he said, Jacob, please don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't believe he is real. And Jacob said to him, well, why is that? And he explained, you see those church ministers over there with their clerical robes and their big crosses over their chest? I knew who they are on the inside. I knew their deceit, their power, their violence. They preach Christ, but I watch their lives, and it just simply doesn't match. Don't talk to me about Jesus. And Yaakov, being pretty smart, replied in this way. Zimmerman, what if I broke into your home, stole your coat and your boots, and where you robbed the bank? What if the police chased me but couldn't catch me, yet later would come to your house to confront you about the crime? What would you say to them? Well, I said I didn't do it, of course. Ah, Zimmerman, but what if the police recognized your coat and your boots? And they were absolutely convinced it was you. What would you say then? He got pretty upset and left. He said, just leave me alone. Days went by, weeks went by, months, even a couple of years. And Yaakov kept coming back, living Christ before Zimmerman. And finally one day Zimmerman asked, Yaakov, how do I come to know this Jesus that you proclaim and live out? And he gave him a simple answer. Turn your life over to him, repent of your sins, and commit yourself to him as, as Lord and Savior. And so Zimmerman, now beside Jacob and trusted in Christ, And when he got up from his knees, he embraced Jacob and said, thanks for being in my life. He said, you wear the coat of Christ very well. So God has designed you to be just who you are for, you know, one purpose and for his purpose. Does our faith, does your faith in Christ meaningfully and missionally interact with the people around you? In other words, do you wear the coat of Christ very well? So would you like to come to dinner? Let me introduce you to my family. Would you like to come to church? Let me introduce you to God's family. And would you like to read the Bible? Let me introduce you to God's word. That's great. Father, I thank you for